Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. That's not what the Puritans were like. That's not what Boston was like. If the problem is yourself, that's a way harder thing to change. This is just boring. Your interpretation of what happens is way more powerful than what happens itself. But how does that impact the reader who's reading the book? Stove is hot. You touch stove. Outset hurts. So this week, we went over what I think is one of my favorite therapy models. I Mm. think I'm still kind of deciding between so many of them. Um, It's in the top three for sure. And it's called narrative therapy. Okay. I'm pretty sure I've talked with you about it before. You've mentioned it at least. Yeah. Yes. So for my family therapy class, we're kind of re-going over it and how it applies to family therapy specifically. Um, But man, I'll talk about narrative therapy whenever. Um, So narrative therapy, as you can probably tell, is a more recent, it's a newer therapy um, theory, I guess you could call it, where the process of therapy is present and future focused. They might dip into the past a little bit, but the point of the theory is trying to discover how the client currently views like their narrative. The theory uses a lot of literary terms to kind of like organize itself, but the counselor and the client are trying to to discover how the client or clients, if you're doing a family, like what their narrative is, what roles they've given themselves, how they kind of view their fit in the family. And also like, kind of the, I guess the overarching stories that they're telling themselves, because there's this idea of like, if you kind of continually tell yourself the story of everything I do fails, like you'll kind of live that out. You will live out that story over and over and over again. Um, So if you're able to first kind of catch that story and find out that you are telling yourself a certain story, so you're fitting into that narrative, you can then change the narrative so that you can begin to live out like other stories. And it's, you know, it's it's definitely not a thing where you can just kind of say whatever you want and say whatever you want for like your story and all of a sudden be like a millionaire. But it's really more aimed at those like, so for family therapy specifically, it might be more aimed at those, um, those trends of like, you know, a son saying like, I'm only, I'm only like going to be making my family proud if I'm always succeeding. Or it could be um, someone in a family saying, if I lose my beauty or if I lose my fitness, my significant other won't care about me. Or it could be a child saying, if I don't do well on this sports team that my parents played, they'll be disappointed in me. It's stories like that, maybe even a little higher up, like one more step up. It could be more broad. Um, But discovering those stories and uncovering them and then rewriting them is kind of the main part, the main premise of 
the theory, which I think is really interesting because I don't know it. It I've like done a lot of storytelling for hobbies and then for jobs I've had. So it's interesting seeing how, you know, humans being these story driven creatures that this kind of newer therapy model is just now tapping into that more officially. I mean, I'm sure people have been doing that for forever. I think like Jungian psychology is very story driven. Um, you've got books that came out in the past like decade, like Hero with a Thousand Faces that talk about these like stories that kind of keep getting told over and over again. Disney obviously like cracked the story formula a while ago to make these stories that really tap into people's, you know, shared struggles. But it's cool to see therapy kind of practicing this in an effective manner. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, I'm reading a book right now. It is, uh, let's see, Please Sorry Thanks by Mark Batterson, which mm -hmm. Mark Batterson, he's like a pastor, writes a ton of books. I actually like really enjoy, I read everything he puts out and like enjoy it a lot more than like on paper would make sense. But so the book, the title, Please Sorry Thanks, it's talking about those three words and like the power that those three words have. But even at a broader sense, like his introduction to the book is about what you're talking about. Like hmm. the idea that, you know, words hold a lot of weight. And like you said, it's not in like a magic formula type of way, but okay. So he, he gives us one really good example. And this is why I was uh, interjecting to say like, there's, he gives us one example of some like, I want to say, okay, I'm going to get all the details wrong. I want to say like British or Australian like sailing troop. So like a hmm. college team or something. And this was maybe 100 years ago. They never won. And their coach, you know what? It wasn't 100 years ago because their coach uh, recorded an audio recording of essentially like a drama, like a... Uh, you know, this was before podcasts, but it was like, you know, they they take this turn around the cove and then like he was narrating like a story, like a dramatic audio, you know, narrative. And it ended with them winning. And he mm. made them listen. He made the team listen to it, I think, two times a day. And the team oh, went. Dang. Yeah. So they went from never winning to winning to i think they then had like an incredible streak where literally they were never defeated for like decades and so that's like an mm. extreme example of you know he's he's making the same point you are which is like it's it's not about you know magic or anything but it's about like the story that you tell yourself and the words that like you kind of you kind of end up believing whatever it is that you end up hearing yourself say i guess is that it yeah i think i think a little bit um man so without having like the direct input of the people in the team themselves like it's hard for me to say exactly like what what the issue might have been but i think uh, yeah essentially like 
I hate to simplify it this much, but that kind of is the beauty of it. Yeah, the stories that we kind of like plan out for ourselves and autopilot believe like do end up having a huge effect on our outcomes. So like if your team is always like, well, we never win, we're too slow, we don't work well together, like that is kind of what get gets played out. So if you're able to directly combat that with whatever this ancient uh ancient Greek sounding tragedy or not tragedy, but success story this coach came up with, like that's going to be way impactful. Which that might relate a little bit to like one of the first core tenets of narrative therapy is this idea of like externalizing the problem. So they try to, which this isn't unique to narrative therapy. A lot of therapy techniques do this, but rather than like allowing the client to continue to say like, I am the problem, like the problem is me. Um, like I'm trying to think for instance. Um, well, that's like the opposite of the like in alcoholics anonymous isn't the thing like you own the problem like i am an alcoholic so that's the opposite of what you're saying yes um well hold on let me now i'm trying to recall that information but i think i think you're correct um but the idea of externalizing the problem is i'm trying to think of an example um Okay, let's just use let's just use addiction, for example, Um, rather than saying like. Like Alcoholics Anonymous, which have you say, like, I am an addict. And part of that is just about having like a really real view of yourself, um, which with addictions work specifically, there's this idea that if you're not real with the fact that you're an addict, um, then you're never going to take actual steps to like change. Like I've heard a lot of people who were like, like big into the music scene, did a lot of drugs and alcohol who will say like, I won't touch the stuff because I am an addict and I know it will take control of me. Mm -hmm. So there's this still this little bit of separation where they realize they're susceptible to it. Like they realize they're susceptible to the influence of alcohol but they also still kind of separate it from themselves in a way where it's like, like where they don't just view themselves as like, I'm an addict because I'm like a huge moral failure and I have no self-control. They, they, they acknowledge that they are an addict, that they're susceptible to it, but they also make alcohol itself into like the villain. I okay. guess. So they're still externalized. So, yeah. I think, yes. I mean, in and a sense, that's very, maybe not in like the precise way that you guys are studying it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So narrative therapy, similarly, like, let's I'm in family therapy right now. So I'm trying to make sure that the examples are related to like, you know, couples or families. Let's say there's a couple who just. They fight all the time. Let's just say that's the problem. Um, and one of the individuals you know, is living out this narrative of like, well, I just lose my temper. I'm a real hot headed guy. I'm really opinionated. And the other person is always saying like, oh, well, like, you know, I feel like I'm never heard. And when I'm not respected, I want to make sure that my opinions are heard. So like, I tend to just like go all out instead of like 
personifying the problems, the therapist would try to work with the client to externalize the problems. Because if the problem is, if the problem is yourself, that's a way harder thing to change um, than by removing the problem from yourself and being able to yourself address it. Um, if you're the problem, it's really hard to find strength in and of yourself to change yourself because you don't have strength through the problem. But if you're able to say like, oh, like, you know, when I get angry, I'm trying to think of how to how to externalize that problem. Instead of saying like, I'm just such an angry person, externalizing it and say like, I like, I need to work on controlling my anger. This probably isn't the best example. <laughs> um, but and I don't know if I'm making the point clear at all. Um, but the main issue is that by trying to separate the client from their issue and externalizing the problem, you're able then to kind of change the narrative about it, even in that process. Like it changes the narrative from saying, I am an angry person to like, I'm a person who's dealing with anger. Um, by changing that divide, you're able to separate yourself. It's not like a, like some new, it's not like the same structure of I'm just going to be angry forever. Like I'm just going to, every time I'm angry, I am an angry person. So there it is. You're kind of able to start to say, well, okay, in my new, in the new story of me dealing with my anger, I can like incorporate techniques. I can, I can lean on other strengths I have because I'm more than just an angry person. Once again, I don't know if I'm making sense. I probably chose the worst example to try to use possible. Well, um, I think that it's like you essentially what I'm hearing you say, and, and maybe I'm thinking in like narrative terms, but you need to be able to be the hero. Okay, so if you're gonna if you're gonna be like the hero in the story, you have to overcome a problem. Or maybe maybe that comes in reverse. Like there has if if there is an external problem, then you can be the hero who steps up to the moment and conquers it. But if you are the problem, yes. you are like implicitly the villain of the story. Exactly. So you just have to conquer yourself. Like if you are the problem, then you have to conquer yourself. But how do you conquer yourself if you're the problem? Like if you define yourself as a problem, what strengths do you have? What skills do you have? What can you use to, to change yourself if you already define yourself as a problem? Like, or as the problem, I should say. If you define yourself as the problem, if you define yourself as having even a problem, even that little bit of a shift gives you room to leverage strengths that you have against a problem rather than saying, well, the problem is me. I am the problem. So I'm still trying to think of what a good example would be, though, because like if it was if it was overspending or if it was overeating those examples still seem really hard to separate. Okay, well maybe maybe here's one. Maybe like 
like the bad way of saying it would be if you were like, I'm broke. That is, you know, I'm the problem as opposed to maybe like I have a lot of debt. And like, well, yeah, you know, my decisions got me here, but also the problem isn't me in this moment. I have a problem, which is like I have a lot of debt and I can, you know, it's separate from me so I can take the steps to to do it. Is that like a better example? Yeah. I think so. I think instead of just leaving it like I'm broke, you maybe w- might want to dig in a little bit more like, well, hey, like, tell me, tell me about why, like why you're broke. Like, tell me about that. And if the person is essentially living out a narrative of like, well, I've always been bad with money or I'm always bad with money or I always gamble away my money, like stuff like that. Um, those are very person as problem centered. So you kind of learn to externalize the problem. If it's like gambling, you might say like, similar to like Alcoholics Anonymous, you kind of, and part of this too is, once again, this is narrative therapy. So you kind of even vilify the problem. Like with gambling or like excessive spending, you might set those things up as externalized, personified forces, you know, like gambling, there's this like, you know, I gambling is like this almost you may, you might make it a villain. I think I've even read before where there's a certain brand of narrative therapy where you even like you do personify the problem. You might give it a name. So like, let's say maybe instead of gambling, it's like chronic spending. You might say like. You know, I am dealing with an issue of chronic spending. But instead of just saying that over and over again, you might just call the chronic spending part like, you might call it like Bob or Susie or whatever and give it a name. That way, when you start to deal with those issues, instead of saying, like, oh, here it is again, I'm not able to control myself, you're able to say, like, no, that's like, that's Susie. And you can kind of, even have like fun with like creating this character if it helps you to externalize the issue so you can go all at this issue. Because if the, especially with this view of therapy, if you're already beating yourself up about the problem and like, it's not that there's made up Susie force is the issue. It's, it's, I'm the issue. You're just going to constantly be beating up yourself and every lose and every loss is because of yourself. But, but if you're able to, externalize that force you can go at it with more tenacity and dislike it more because it's not like you is that helping yeah it is and and it even makes me it kind of seems like spiritual in a way like christianity a lot of the times i'm realizing this as i'm talking like it talks about you know the force it kind of makes sin into a personal issue but also talks about like sin as like a force you know like a corrupting nate like a corrupting force it talks about like uh i don't know if it's in corinthians but talks about like not falling prey to the temptations of like the evil one or the accuser you know it talks about these external forces that prey on the believer and prey on like humans there's these forces and pressures that try to tempt and taunt and accuse people's consciences and it's kind of i think similar to that in a way 
where rather than just always saying like, you know, hey, you're a broken, messed up, imperfect person, good luck ever being happy. Um, it tries to externalize the problem in the same way where it's like, hey, there's these forces outside of you that are trying to control you, but you can't like personify yourself with the forces. You might have allied yourself with it. You might have autopiloted yourself with it. You might have chosen to do these things, but you are not this broken, terrible, mutated monster that you view yourself as. You have to be able to externalize the problem so you can begin to fight against it. Yeah. Yeah, that the definitely like the religion angle was playing out in my head too when you were initially bringing it up because like i i know to some people that is that is what the idea of i mean you were saying more so sin but that's what the idea of like the devil is is like you know they would say oh well people just need somebody to blame problems on and so he's the character that does that uh and because like, like when I was thinking of it is when you're even saying like you could you can literally create like a character like, you know, Bob or Susie or whatever and name it. I was like, OK, well, that's probably what a lot of people think like Satan is. It is mm-hmm. it is interesting. The parallels and I think. That. Yeah, I guess I wonder what. uh in the absence of that sort of character, you become the problem. Sorry, I'm really just like rambling here, like total word salad. No, you're but fine. I guess what I'm saying is like, do we as people need there to be a external problem? And does it like, do we just need it even if it's true? I guess what I'm saying. Well, once again, from one thing I need to constantly remind myself when learning therapy stuff is like, not everyone needs therapy. Um, so there's a lot of like stuff that therapy can give the common person to help them live a healthier life. But like, I don't think everyone needs this sort of narrative structure, like to be able to live a healthy life. So I guess to answer your question, I don't know if every human needs this like externalized problem, I'm sure for some people, like if you have like a narcissistic personality disorder or if you have like other certain like mental issues, you might be really good at this. You might never view yourself as having a problem. You know, it's it's always everybody else who is the issue. Um, so the opposite could surely be true. Um, well, I, but guess- I think. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think for some people, there is such a identification with the problem um, or really just an identification with like whatever this negative story they're telling themselves, they can't break out of it. Like going back to your boat example, if you're just always the worst team in the league and you choose to accept that, like we are the worst team in the league, well, then, yeah, you're going to be the worst team in the league. But if you're able to externalize it and say, like, we've lost a lot of games. 
Well, then all of a sudden you're able to say, okay, we can attack that because we're not the worst team in the league. We're just not winning. So we can practice more. We can train more. We can get to the point where we can like work on it. But if we are just accepting that we're the worst team in the league, then our practices are going to suck and our games are going to suck and our we're going to be losing before we even like step up to compete. So then just like expand that out to like other problems. If you're the like black sheep of your family, then yeah, you're always going to you're always going to see every interaction you have with your family as they are they hate you or they're looking down on you. If you are you know, let's say there's abuse in your past and if you view yourself as being damaged goods or if you view yourself as being like unworthy of a good relationship, well, then, yeah, you're going to anytime a healthy relationship comes your way, you're going to view that and say, this isn't for me because I'm damaged goods. It's not that I it's not that there was like I suffered a beat or I, I need to get better at the exact wording of it. But it's not that like I was abused. It's like. I'm I'm broken, I'm damaged goods. And those are like those are different, you know? Yeah, they're very similar. But there's there's a lot of power released in being able to externalize the issue with with abuse. You could even make it into this weird toxic monster that wants to keep abusing you over and over again or wants to keep harming you every day as you continue to believe that you're still this damaged abuse. But if you're able to separate separate yourself from that, you can then begin to change your own narrative and not view these negative thoughts of I'm damaged goods, I'm abused, no one's going to love me. You don't say those are, that's myself. That's my own inner voice. That's me telling myself that. You're able to say that's another force telling me that. It's a force I'm choosing not to follow anymore, trying to get me to live a narrative that I don't want. And I can now fight against that force. I guess it's kind of just adding more fluff to like basic CBT or like thought controlling techniques or like changing the way you think about an issue. Like I know, I think we've talked about CBT before. The basic premise of it is like, when something happens, your interpretation of what happens is way more powerful than what happens itself. Um, narrative therapy, I guess, is essentially putting more narrative fluff on that. When you think, think certain thoughts, when something happens, when something is getting ready to happen, how do you interpret those things? And if you're able to you know, the autopilot you might have of like a traditionally negative interpretation, if you're able to change that, then you're able to start to to notice it so you can then root it out, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that we are giving certain examples and we're kind of talking about this type of therapy like out maybe on its edges, you know, in terms of like literally coming up with a character and giving it a name and like drawing it and, you know, throwing darts at it, that sort of thing. But I, I don't think that like hearing you call it like just adding fluff to it. I actually have like a negative reaction to that. Cause I actually think, you know, you're the one studying this, not me, but 
from my perspective, like humans are story making and story living like people, you know, we, we live and Mm -hmm. think in stories. And so the core idea of this type of therapy, I think to me sounds like very true because we are, and we see ourselves like as characters in a story. And so I do think that, uh, I guess what I'm saying is like, I think that there's more to this than just semantics. Like, I do think that people get into crazy stuff where it's just like, you know, speak whatever you want and like, it'll, you know, it'll all happen. I don't think either one of us are saying that, but I do know that if you wake up every day telling yourself like, uh, yeah, I'm an, I'm an addict or I'm a loser or I'm this or I'm that. I do know that that like literally does change the way you're going to live your day. So I guess I'm just saying, I don't think Mm -hmm. it's, it's fair to say it's just fluff. No. And, and fluff probably wasn't the best words. I just know CBT. That's one thing I like about narrative therapy is CBT and other like cognitive behavioral therapy, other very cognitive thought based therapies just seem very scientific, you know? Yeah. It, it, it makes therapy seem more like a math equation. That's what I like about narrative therapy is that it it speaks a more human language, I think. It accomplishes the same thing without – I mean, some people, they're going to love just CBT. They're going to love like, hey, give me the equation for how to fix my problem. But I, I think for most people, being able to tap into stories and their story is going to be able to really see the most change. I, I think another thing too, going off your point, is um, narrative therapy acknowledges a lot of like cultural narrative, which mm. is where a lot of people kind of get wrapped up is in the idea of like whatever their whatever their culture, whatever narrative their culture is telling them they need to live up to. Um, there's a lot of like unpacking that. So I guess that is some like past and present work in therapy is like, Hey, what are the cultural narratives you're really dealing with? Which was a huge aha moment for myself when I first heard of narrative therapy, because it just seemed like so many things clicked all of a sudden. Cause in a lot of my work with working with like students and young adults in a church setting, you know, a lot of it was you'd have people who want to meet up and want to talk. And the first thing they'd say, or when they start really opening up, they, one of the first things they say is just them talking about how they feel like they're not measuring up or they know what they should be doing, but they, it's just not working. It's just, they're not able to do it. They're not doing as good as someone else. And it just kind of creates, you can kind of hear this other narrative weighing them down with like these, these pressures and not that like, you know, as a society, we shouldn't have like, I don't know. I'm not thinking that wide, but I just know when some people get trapped under a certain narrative and see it as like a rubric for their lives, um, it can create a lot of weight, especially if they're not meeting those standards. Um, So that's where, once again, it's kind of you have to identify the story that they feel like they're failing in. You have to externalize the issues that they might be personifying as themselves. 
And then you kind of need to reauthor that story. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. The thought that it's not just your own personal narrative that might be, you know, that you might need to work through, but also, yeah, the cultural narratives because. Cause we're probably getting our understanding of a narrative from our cultural narratives, whatever that culture is, could be wider American culture, could be your town's culture, could be your school's culture, could be your lunch tables culture. You know, there's different stories and pressures coming from all these different circles and if you are latching onto like a failure narrative, well, then that's not, you know, it's not going to be good. Yeah. Cause like it makes me think of the, I mean, that's why, that's why people talk so much about like, I guess the American dream. And even when I say that, like, I feel like since I've been born, the thing I've been hearing about the American dream is that like what happened to it. You know, like it, it, mm-hmm. if it existed, it existed before I was here, but I've grown up hearing about like, whether it it's this or it's that, or like it's yes or it's no. And all of those sorts of like conversations, they, they like set the stage for, I mean, gosh, even that expression, like setting the stage is like a play term. You know, like we're living out mm-hmm. the play of our lives. So, yeah, I guess like uh, I, I guess I'm saying like I totally understand what you're saying with uh, having students come in and say like, well, I'm not measuring up. I'm not I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not you know, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough friends. And it's like, well, yeah, actually, a lot of that stuff that we get upset about actually has no impact on our on our life you know like if if you wake up and you have i don't know like five friends i don't know what like they would say the averages or anything but if you have enough people in your life that you're not i don't know like lonely it really doesn't matter whether or not you have like 10,000 followers on you know tiktok or anything like i guess what i'm saying is it a lot of the things that we're upset about don't actually like touch our life other than that. We've heard a story that it's supposed to. And those are like the cultural narratives that you're talking about. Those things that honestly probably don't even wouldn't, wouldn't make a tangible difference if we had them or if we didn't, but just, we've been told that we're supposed to have them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, like to your point, talking about friends and social media, if you are a middle school, high school, college student, even like an adult who thinks that what being a liked person looks like is having this many friends and having this much engagement throughout the day on your phone and having this much, you know, yada, 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 you might start to believe this narrative of, you know, according to the standards I'm seeing, I'm not liked. Like people don't like me. And so then you might just give up. You know, you might be going to school every day with the opportunity to engage in new friend groups or try new clubs, but not even do that because the problem is you. According to the story that's being told, you are 
not liked. But when you're able to externalize the problem, when you kind of understand that you're in this wider narrative, you're able to externalize the problem and then kind of take control of authoring your own story. It's not that, well, according to the wider society, I'm not liked because of A, B, and C. It's like, well, no, like I just haven't found the right friend group. So I can work on that. Yeah. No, I like, I can actively go and and change. I'm yeah, really glad that you brought that up because that's something I was gonna say earlier and then we we got away from it. But yeah, to me, that's the problem is like it it has a lot to do with pattern recognition where stuff has happened to you in your past or you've done stuff in your past or whatever it is, and our minds try to recognize patterns so that we're not, you know, like to make sense of a whole lot of information, our minds find these patterns and we come up with these things like, oh, well, I'm just this, I'm just that. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that until it does what you are saying, which is it stops you from doing things that are like fully within your control to, to try to do something about. It's like you notice a pattern in the past and then that kind of shackles you in the present when literally there's nothing, you know, if you, if you're telling yourself like, I'm the type of person who, uh, gosh, I don't know. I'm the type of person who I keep using money examples who, who can never hold down a job. It's like, okay, well, but actually all you have to do is like go apply. Like that's fully within your control to do. And then the next thing is like, don't, uh, I don't know, whatever, don't do whatever it is that like keeps giving you problems. But the point is like, yes, you recognize the pattern in the past and that might've been true, but that in no way is like impeding on your ability to change it if you want to. At least things that are within your control. Yes. Yep. I think, yeah, you pointing out pattern recognition is huge. Because that's probably, I didn't necessarily read about that in the chapter, but that's probably where a lot of that comes from, which once again, just makes me think of cognitive behavioral therapy and acknowledge and like finding these autopilot thoughts that just when A happens, your mind learns that A is because of B, so do C. Like it's just part of our survival, you know, on, a, on the most basic sense, if stove is hot and you touch stove, Ouch, that hurts. But we we take it wider than that. Like you said, like if I've had two jobs and I got fired twice, it must be because overall I just can't hold down a job. But if you're able to kind of interrupt that that pattern of thinking, then you can attack the problem differently. Like it's not that you'll never be able to hold down a job. It could be, you know, maybe your management wasn't great. Maybe you couldn't hold down a job because you were like depressed. Maybe you were going at the wrong type of job. Maybe you needed to, you know, change up some of your schedule in order to wake up on time for work. Or there's, there's a lot of different things you can then attribute to why past examples didn't work instead of just falling into a pattern. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, well, I think, too, that so there's this other example in that Mark Batterson book, because we're talking about the narrative and what I'm about to say is not about narrative per se, 
but he gives examples of like this one study where they, you know, people were told that they were like part of some sort of research and they were put in a room and they were given some like, you know, BS task that ended up not having to do with anything. But in the two different versions, there were two different groups. One of them, they, uh, they just left the paperwork and stuff like normal. The other one, they like sprinkled in, I guess you would say like polite words, like please and thank you. And just more, uh, I guess serene language like that. And then what they did is they had both groups finish up the task that said, okay, here you're done. Go hand your paperwork to the people at the door and then have a good day. Uh, and at the, the people at the door were having a staged conversation. And so this was the real experiment. They were timing. How long does it take people to like rudely interrupt this staged conversation? Hmm. And the results of it were that the people who were primed with all of this, like polite language, you know, in their paperwork that they probably never thought twice about, but they were just reading please. And thank you. It like subconsciously, made them more polite and i think they were saying like some of the people in that group just literally never they hit the time limit like they never interrupted Mm -hmm. and so i guess the reason i'm bringing that up is like we're talking about the narratives like literally the things that you tell yourself but there is probably even just like a subconscious psychology to like the general mood and stuff and and so i guess in family therapy this would be a great place to work all of that out because a it might be the things that like literally somebody in your family says about you like you are this but it also might just be like an overall i guess culture of the home that can make a big difference in these type of things and so i wonder if that's not part of part of what you would look for in like a family therapy as well well, yeah, I think the for the for the application of family therapy, it's probably, you know, you want to understand, oh, my gosh, there'd be so many things to unpack. It'd be so interesting. So you'd have to understand, like, the different stories that all of the family members are believing, like the cultural ones that they're kind of a part of, and then you did hear the individual stories and then you might need to hear even like a collective family story um to like move forward from that um like speaking from and i know i've talked about this so many times so hopefully she doesn't mind me continuing to bring up this but i know like even for the example of like when i was in like middle school high school and me and mom would just fight all the time um which like a lot of it has to do with me. Um, I was just really hot headed. I can remember when I tried to, I can just remember the days of being like, okay, I don't want to do this. Like, and I, I can, this is once again, me looking back, but I can just remember having to like, tell myself like every interaction, like I would go into any interaction with mom, just with the understanding of we're going to fight. That's what me and mom do. Me and mom fight. and 
you know, that right there is a narrative. Like I'm already choosing that in every interaction I've got to get ready. Like, because it's going to be a fight, but by believing that narrative, it kind of makes it happen. You know, it makes the fights over the napkin colors happen because you can't just interact with this person. There's going to be a fight. So you kind of have to, I can remember there's a couple of times where me and mom would sit down and just like talk and be like, we fight a lot, but both of us are acknowledging we don't want to. And that we, we do like love each other. So we don't need to fight. And we just, we're going to try to be more aware of it and end it. And I think that's probably very similar to like narrative therapy. You know, you have to help those two people understand the patterns that they're thinking are just going to happen over and over again. Maybe even help them understand like where those patterns come from and then help them to establish like new patterns and just replace patterns yeah. with, with stories. But yeah. Yeah, probably. So I guess what are we saying? Being aware is the first step, like of the story you're telling yourself, then externalizing it. And then from there, I mean, there would be a, a variety of ways to address it. But I guess those are sort of the two first things that you need. Um, well, let me let me jump into what into my part, because Please. this kind of connects so actually i I was not going to bring this i think until next week but since it ties in so much i'm gonna try to make this work so i was doing some research this week and i was reading the introduction of my copy of the scarlet letter which was written by well, the book is written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, but this introduction is written by Nina Bain. And mm -hmm. I've read it before. I, I really like just her, you know, brief introduction to this book. But one thing that surprised me is that she she essentially says that uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's style of writing here, what she says is that he created like psychological fiction before psychological fiction was a thing and hmm. even before psychology was a thing. And when I read that immediately, I was like, okay, well that's something we're going to have to talk about on the podcast. But ha have you read the book? Did you read it in high school or anything? No, no, I haven't. Okay. So the, I guess I'll give just a brief, introduction then the scarlet letter is like my favorite fiction book and that's like a very basic answer every time i read a new book i'm like can i call this one my favorite but it it just isn't so brief overview of the book i guess spoilers if you care about that so uh there's a couple different characters there's hester who is the main character and she is living in, you know, Puritan, New England. She has a baby out of wedlock. And so she, at the beginning of the book, has been marked with the scarlet letter, which is this red letter A that she has to wear everywhere. And A stands for adultery. So that's like the where you get the title and the setting and everything. Uh, as it turns out, here's the spoiler. Uh, she had the baby with the town's I guess reverend or minister I don't know exactly what 
title Puritans use. But that's who that's who she had the baby with. And uh, gosh, let me I guess let me I hope I'm not getting any of this important information wrong in my favorite book. But what goes on throughout the entire book is essentially you see these two different these two different reactions. And this is where the psychology comes in, because Hester has been given this label of shame that she has to wear everywhere. And she's kind of like, I mean, she's not like fully cast out. She still interacts with people in the town, but she's like a pariah. She's like, you know, she's labeled with her sin. But she has kind of like this strong internal character where, you know, I don't I, I don't remember exactly if she she regrets Okay, so that's that's sort of maybe deeper than I want to get into it. But pretty much she's like, hey, out of this, I got my beautiful baby daughter. She's like, I made this decision out of passion for a man that I cared for. And so she's kind of just like, hey, maybe this isn't quite as like simple as you all are making it out to be. You know, like she wears this mark of shame. And on the one hand, she's like. Like on the one hand, okay, so she does, she wears it. So she isn't totally like, screw you. She's like, these are the decisions I made. I'm living with the consequences. But also, I guess this is what I'm trying to say. She refuses to be like totally crushed by it. Compare that to the reverend, on the other hand, who nobody knows he did this. Only he does and only, you know, ultimately a couple other people, but it like kills him. And whether it's his conscience or whether it's the secret of it or whether it's a whole bunch of things, he like becomes physically ill holding in like this grave thing that he accomplished. And uh, yeah, so the, the whole story is sort of like a you're looking at the difference between these two people and. I guess that that's the sense in which it's psychological, but I just thought that was really interesting because like when you read the book, it's very romantic prose. Like it's not at all what comes to my mind when I think of, of psychological fiction. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thought. I'm, I'm I think I'm trying to force that to relate to narrative therapy. I don't know if I necessarily can or if it's good to. I think that. I think that I don't know if it relates to narrative therapy, but I think where it relates to narrative has to do with the Puritan. The Puritan culture Mm, and beliefs. And so, yeah, let me let me back up a little bit because I got straight into the psychological thing, but one thing that uh, Bane says in this, I, gosh, by the way, I, I've never said her name out loud, so I hope I'm saying it correctly. Uh, but one thing she talks about that I really and I really like about this about Hawthorne's work is that his his writing historically is very. What would be the word? It 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 works historically. It tracks, but he's not a historical fiction writer. And what I mean by that is 
if you read his books, you're not going to see any just like, like glaring. That's not what the Puritans were like. You know, that's not what Boston was like. You know, you, you said they were driving cars and this was before, you know, the car was, there's, there's no like glaring errors or anything like that. But at the same time in his writing about history, he's not pedantic on the details because his point isn't that you walk away reading the book. You you walk away from reading the book and you say, oh, wow, now I know so much about the Puritans. His point is that you walk away from the book and you say, oh, now I know so much about the human heart and how mm. people respond to these, these cultures. And go, to go back to what you were saying, these cultural narratives, because the book doesn't work if it's just these two characters. The, the Puritan ideology is almost like its own character in the story because that ideology is the weight that crushes the reverend and it's the thing that Hester kind of questions. And, you know, that's why that's why I kind of, you know, mumbled on this earlier. But it's like she's not she's not coming out as an activist and resisting and like putting up signs about, you know, Puritans, you suck. This is not a sin. This is whatever. It's like she she has like a whole different. Like I said earlier, you know, she just refuses to be crushed by it. And so that's the connect I saw when you were talking earlier is like the narrative. One of them was fully purchased into a cultural story. And they saw themselves because of that as, you know, he's tortured because he's like, I'm this reverend that everybody thinks is the best guy in the world. And little do they know that I am. I am this evil, awful, decrepit person. And Hester's thing is she just isn't as willing to accept that narrative. So, yeah, I guess that's the connect I see. Obviously, there's no like therapy going on in the story. But the whole story is is an idea of like a cultural sentiment and whether or not you're going to buy into how you are labeled by it. So does that does that make it any more clear? No, no, I think that makes it really clear. Like, Esther is her name? Hester, with an H. Hester. Um, well, I think there's kind of the externalization of the problem, maybe a little bit, where Hester, rather than saying, so the reverend is saying, I am a failure. I am this morally deplorable villain, and that kills him, you know, robs his life. Whereas Hester seems like she's able to say, I even heard you say this a couple of times, I made this decision. And so it's not this continuation of who, she, even though she literally has to wear the scarlet letter, um, she doesn't continue to identify herself as the scarlet letter. She says, I have to wear this because I did that, but I'm still the mother of my child and there's other things I'm in, you know she's able to go on with her life because she can externalize and separate herself from it a little bit. Whereas the Reverend is not, the Reverend doesn't have to actually wear a physical label, but he's like labeled his internal 
I'm trying to force myself to use narrative therapy techniques now. Uh, he's like forcing himself to live out the story internally, even though no one else is holding him to that standard. He is holding himself to the standard of I'm a morally terrible person and deserve judgment and ferocity and who, who knows what else. And that begins to kind of like decay him from the inside out. Yes. And you said the externalization that that's a great point. Cause like in Hester's case, she is, she's, she's kind of forced to externalize the problem because this, this mark of shame is put on her and it, it's not, it's not a good thing in the sense that like it is intended to shame her. So like, that's obviously bad, but it, I guess does from the jump externalize the problem for her. And obviously too, like, and this is the way it goes. Like in the woman's case, she gets pregnant and has a child. So like, there's no, there is no option for her hiding her problem. Even if she would have wanted to, whereas the Reverend, like as torn up as he gets, like he still is, is holding the secret for such a long time. So, yeah, I guess the problem is just by default in her case externalized. And maybe that is why she, you know, is able to make better peace with it is because, you know, she's literally holding this baby like there's no hiding it. And, you know, people attempt to shame her through it, but still, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm talking on the one hand, I'm trying not to say too much from the book for time's sake. But on the other hand, it's like it's a really good book. People should should go read it. I might have to pick it up. You've been interested in that book since like. I feel like I was in like my sophomore year of high school. I feel like you read it way early. No, I well, because I read it in my sophomore year of high school. It was one of the ones that we read and then. Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of other books, but something about it's something about his writing style. And actually, it it is the thing I said earlier, which is that he draws back from history and he draws he 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 writes about like real world settings and stuff, but he's not uh he's not concerned with like the details. And so like at this point, we're totally departing from narrative therapy, but I, you know, that I don't like love fantasy, sci-fi, any of these things that are more like either myth based or more, more, uh, fantastical. Like that's not really my favorite, you know, on, on one end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, you can get into like historical fiction where it's like, okay, but this is just boring. Like this is, I don't, I don't care the color of the house that George Washington lived in and that it, that it's accurate to history. Like that's not what I'm trying to read about. So Hawthorne, his, his style kind of meets in the middle where it's like, Hey, this is, you can imagine this being real life. And in fact, I'm pretty knowledgeable about what was going on here. But at the same time, like I'm telling you a human story that is ultimately about people and the way that that they live and the way they think and all that sort of thing so 
that's why I like the book. And yeah, it was just, it really caught me off guard that it being a style I enjoy so much. It really caught me off guard for her to say that it was like that he invented psychological uh, writing before psychology was even a field. And I guess that was the question for me is like, can you write a book like that now? Like now that we know what psychology is and how it works, I'm just curious, like what impact that would have had on, on the book. Cause like you said, a lot of forms of psychology, not all of them, but some of them can just ultimately make people into like, you know, science, whatever, like firing neurons and what, and that, that stuff's true. That's how it works. But yeah, it's just like kind of fascinating to imagine how does that impact our movies? How does that impact our music? All that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I think one thing too, to consider, I haven't dove too much into the topic. I just know it's something we're kind of told to consider is that like therapy and and psychology are new labels for something that isn't necessarily new. Like therapy has a a huge marriage with spirituality um, and many of the world's religions all across like religion, spiritual beliefs accomplish things very similar to therapy, talk us through things very similar to therapy. Um, So even though like, Nathaniel Hawthorne might have written a book, like a psychological, what'd you, what'd you call it? Psychological. Uh, just fiction. Fiction. Psychological he might have written, drama, I guess. Yeah. He might've written a psychological fiction before psychology. Like the field of psychology was a thing, but he's writing about humans, you know? And so whether you look at the Bible, the Quran, the teaching of Buddha, like, other spirituality practices from across the world, like these types of ideas aren't necessarily new. Um, Right. We might just be putting more recent labels on them. Yes. And I am, I think when I'm wondering how it impacts our movies and how it impacts our, you know, stories and all that sort of thing, I think I'm asking that with reference to the, you know, not the, not the, not the peak, but kind of like the runoff at the bottom of the mountain in the sense of like, we've talked before about how people self-diagnose themselves and they just kind of like grab these scraps of like good ideas that they've heard and they, they use it, you know, without actually like having a lot of depth to, you know, they, they kind of end up using these things in the wrong way. I think that's sort of the question I have is like, how does all of our knowledge of psychology, which yes, is kind of new terms for old ideas, but how does that impact like the reader who's reading a book? Like, are they just reading, are they reading the scarlet letter and like diagnosing the characters instead of, instead of reading the meaning mm. out of it like i don't know it's more themselves. of a rhetorical question yeah i mean i'm not like naive to think that books can't still be good or anything like or naive like i'm i'm totally not saying that psychology is a bad thing either it's just one of those things that like it is a relatively new 
field that has like touched a lot of of life and so it's it's interesting to think about how we're reading and we're writing and we're do we're creating everything with like this new field in the back of our minds well i, I guess, guess. Okay, so kind of how I feel of it. I'll use a very recent example. So I just binged watched Beef in the past two days. Have you watched Beef yet? Oh, oh, no, I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah, I need to okay. watch it. First off, a lot of very adult themes in Beef. So if you're listening and you're not an adult, don't watch Beef. Um, but talking about this, the whole field of psychology, you know, anger is something that's a part of it's something I have to watch to use narrative therapy. I have, uh, I'm going Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a problem with anger. Um, I'm not an angry person, but anger can be a thing that I struggle with. Um, so I'm watching this show about these people who have just intense bouts of anger. Um, and I found myself as a psychology guy trying to diagnose it, trying to diagnose what was happening. Um, and I had to be very careful to step away from that and say, this is a human story about where anger can take us if we're not careful. And as someone who like fights with anger, I need to be learning from this, not diagnosing it, which makes me think of, you know, the verse that, you know, knowledge, you know, knowledge puffs up or even like, you know, be careful to call yourself like a teacher. Because I think once you start to become an expert of something, you start to look for it instead of like learning from it. Like as you watch media, you start to look for where your field of expertise applies or where you can apply the labels you've learned instead of doing the human thing of, oh, I just need to learn from this. Um, yeah. Or at least that's yeah, well in my... That's been my own my own interpretation of it. I shouldn't say it's how everybody is, but for myself, having been in ministry for 10 years, going to psychology, having a lot of answers and reasons for things uh, will very quickly give me, if I'm not careful, the excuse to not learn from a source and instead just look at the source and apply my own labels to it and organize it in my own system instead of being like, oh, maybe I shouldn't blame all the problems in my life on some other person who I'm angry at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the experience you were talking about too, that's, that's something I see that happens online a lot is it, you know, it, every, every year it seems like there's a new movie or show where people, <laughs> and I'll be honest, this one, I'm not that guy, but this one, this is like a Gen Z thing where People will tweet and be like, uh, have people noticed that Walter White is like pretty messed up? Like, it's pretty <laughs> crazy that people are enjoying that show. And you're just you're like hitting yourself. You're like that. That's it's a story. And stories are full of good and bad people. And like you said, you watch it to learn about human nature. But that's not co-signing. You know, and so I think maybe that gets to the point of what I was saying earlier is like, yeah, maybe, maybe we do feel the need to like label everything right and wrong and like diagnose is not the term I'm thinking of, but like, but like pinpoint, you know, oh, here's what they're doing. Like they're gaslighting. Here's what they're doing. They, they have bipolar and it's like, okay, but that's, 
that's not what stories are about. That's what different things are about. That might be stuff that you need to fix in your own life if you have it. But that also, there's something to like reading a book and listening to music and watching a movie. That's just like a, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, but it's like an experience and you don't have to get caught up on that the main character did something bad. So, and I think that to kind of marry the two together, like, I think that watching the characters and watching bad characters that sometimes have good inclinations or watching good characters who mess up and do things wrong, to your point, in some way that helps you that helps you, I don't know, make sense of those things in your own life. So, yeah, I guess it's just it's just an interesting thought that we enjoy media with like a different sort of hyper aware fixation on on certain things. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys learned something new. So excited you guys are here joining us. I know that that sounds so canned, but seriously, we're both excited about being in school, and if you guys can get some enjoyment out of that as well, hey, that's an added benefit. We'll see you guys on the next one after we get done with some more homework.